0: Welcome once again to the Anuim Housing Home is Everything podcast. I'm Russ Frazier, President of Anuim Housing, and welcoming uh, today Shelby Ridley, Director of Homeless Support Services at Primary Healthcare, and Cynthia Latcham, Director of Programs and Services at Anuim Housing. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Hey. So, in this second series in our 2020 podcast uh, set, we are again exploring how housing stability and homelessness intersects with other subjects and other community partners that we work with here at Antewim Housing. And uh, this uh, segment today we really wanted to focus on housing and healthcare, which is why we invited uh, Shelby to join us. And uh, this is again just really a way to showcase how as a community we need to address homelessness in a number of different ways. Um, Housing, housing first, the model that we all, I think, subscribe to and believe in is an important part of that. But identifying and understanding the health care needs, both uh, physical and mental health issues that are affecting individuals that are unhoused, and how we maintain and retain housing stability for those individuals that are, that are housed, uh, that are suffering and uh, dealing with long-term chronic uh, illnesses or other uh, issues in their lives. So with that, uh, I'll jump to you, Shelby, to uh, to get us started off, and just if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about primary health care and uh, and your role.
1: Sure, so uh, community or sorry, primary health care is a community health center, um, and we serve people who are uninsured, underinsured, or completely insured. We have medical, dental, behavioral health, pharmacy, HIV prevention services Um, There's really a variety of services there and we really believe in treating the whole person so um, We want easy access we want people to be able to have health care regardless of whether or not they currently have insurance and we want it to be Culturally competent health care We have about 30% of the staff at primary health care are bilingual so we also want to make sure that we're serving people Um, exactly where they are. A lot of our clinics um, are in, we have, our homes are in Story County, Marshall County, and then here in Polk County. We have a variety of different clinics. So we also operate a healthcare for the homeless clinic in Central Iowa Shelter and Services, trying to really um, decrease the barriers to accessing healthcare. And I think what's interesting about community health centers is that they are, really looking, if you're looking at the whole person, you're looking at social determinants of health and housing is one of those. And so we have homeless support services as a part of primary health care. I I think we're one of the only community health centers in Iowa that has that. Um, And my role there is I oversee anything related to homelessness. So we're the centralized intake for Polk County. I kind of look at us as um, the hub for homelessness. We make all of the referrals for HUD-funded housing um, and shelter. And we also have eight different case management programs that are all working under a housing first model um, to try and get people into housing as quickly as possible and then figuring out how do we keep them stably housed.
0: So you're touching people on a wide range of the uh, of the spectrum that uh, if we're, and for today's conversational purposes, understanding that you've got a, a uh, clientele, as you mentioned, that are uninsured, underinsured, or fully insured, but for the most part, uh, talking about again for today, the, the individuals that are coming from a homeless or housing crisis background in some form mm-hmm. or another, you're you're really kind of moving them along a number of different segments segments of that of that spectrum. So, Cynthia, uh, from our perspective right here at Anomum Housing. Talk about, if you would, just how we're working with primary health care after we have an individual housed.
2: Okay, so once we um, have gotten that referral from centralized intake and we have somebody moved into housing, um, we then become you know the case management agency. However, we frequently do touch back to primary health care to um, get support if there becomes um, more problems within the home or if we are concerned that somebody is becoming more unstably housed. Um, or again, if there's health concerns that we're concerned, how do we um, how do we serve these people with uh, you know increasing health problems? Then you know centralized intake and primary health care is our really our go-to place to be able to you know a- achieve that support.
0: So we both mentioned centralized intake. Um, tell me uh, or, or share for our listeners here. Uh, a little more about that and how it it came about and really the history of uh, of centralized intake. Shelby, you want to start with that?
1: Sure. So in 2015, um, Polk County moved to a centralized intake, which essentially means that each client who would have maybe gone to five or six different agencies to get their needs met before come to a single front door. And at that front door at Primary Health Care, they are able to complete an intake and because we all have a shared data system with the client's permission, they're only sharing their story once with us. We're trying to get as much information as we can and during that intake, we're assessing, prioritizing, and trying to make the right referral at the right time. So we think that it's important to understand where people are at and to only make appropriate referrals, knowing that if we provide um, five referrals and they don't work out, they're not trusting us and they won't likely come back. So we want to make right referral at the right time. We want to provide client choice. but We also realize we have to prioritize because we don't have enough resources for what we really need in our community. Um, and so we use a prioritization tool as a part of that. We also look at people's length of homelessness. And during that time, we're also assessing for any public benefits or if they need any um, Referrals to like medical or dental and we try and make those connections right there knowing that we may never see that person again or they may come back and see us once a week just because we're a good touchstone. Um, But really it's provided um, the community with a a single way of how we tell people to access the system and the other providers have more time to focus on how to serve clients that are enrolled um, than instead of taking phone calls about, you know, I'm I'm here for your program and, and trying to figure out that prioritization, we can do all of that on the front end for them so that Cynthia and her team can focus simply on on housing and case managing an already vulnerable
2: population. Mm-hmm. So the place that we get the referral, we know that um, in order for people to qualify for our our programming, they have to be long-term homeless, and they also have to have that disability. And so um, we're able to work with um, primary health care to make sure that all of those, um, those requirements are met. And then they're also, because they're already working as oftentimes their medical provider, are able to provide those all important diagnoses for us to be able to serve them on our programs.
0: So you said you use an assessment tool and I'll, uh, the, the, this vulnerability index is that assessment mm-hmm. tool. Um, what are some of the things that, uh, during that intake process that you're seeing or learning that are, uh, are critical in the decision-making process then?
1: You know, I would say in terms of the VI-SPEDAT, it, it's really assessing the, the person as a whole and it's looking at um, kind of social vulnerabilities. It's looking at their health factors and where um, there might be vulnerabilities there. It is looking at mental health. I would say people who have not been treating their physical or their mental health are often more vulnerable. Um, and that, that other things kind of fall to the wayside when um, their mental health or substance use are really exasperated by their homelessness. And so we're kind of looking at a, a myriad of things and they're usually converging. Um, it's not usually just one thing when they're coming in and they're doing their intake. Um, and the VI-SPDAT is just an objective way for us because it's a client self-report. So it's. It's not allowing us to provide any of that input. That's the client just simply reporting, you know, this is where I'm at. It's yes or no answers. And then we can really see how, how vulnerable people are, and that allows us to prioritize.
0: So, Cynthia, how's that changed how we have uh, at AnaWim been working or the, the, uh, the type of individuals that we've been working with in the last, say, two, three years?
2: It's, it's actually completely changed. So the old system allowed um, for different case managers to advocate for a person in order to get into housing. And we're not saying that that advocacy is a bad thing, but frequently, if you have an advocate, you aren't the most vulnerable because you're able to have already accessed some sort of help or services. So by changing this up and doing the prioritization system, we're making sure that the people who are being referred to our programs are the most vulnerable based upon the assessment tool. And it also means that it takes a lot of our subjectiveness. um, You know, like someone's story really sounds really horrific today, but who's to say that somebody else's story tomorrow might be worse or, or better. So we're not, we're not listening to, you know, what we emotionally want to do. We're looking at, you know, where are people scoring in terms of, of vulnerability and then making those referrals that are to the best fit possible. Um, and then, you know, but what that means is that who we are now serving are incredibly difficult. Um, they're highly vulnerable, lots more physical health problems, lots more, um, Amputations um, and a lot more severe mental health, um, definitely.
0: I think what I would want to emphasize to to anybody that's listening to us, and we talk about this this vulnerability index, the VI-SVID-AD, the tool that it's we're talking about, and the word vulnerability, we, I want it means to be mean understood that uh, we're really measuring somebody's likelihood of dying tonight. Mm-hmm. That's effectively what we're talking about. Is is death of these individuals that if we don't act uh, and so i think just to reiterate the seriousness of and uh, the urgency of that and so i think that's part of what we end up deflecting sometimes in our own work is is never forgetting by any means that we're not that that's the seriousness of it but i think sometimes we have to put certain labels on things to, in order to Somewhat numb ourselves in the idea that we're talking about individuals that, uh, without our uh, help, uh, may not be with us tomorrow. And, uh, and so I think that's just important. I think to a message that we need to continue to carry forward as a to our community to better understand the importance and, and urgency of our work.
2: Correct. And we also know that when people are living outside, that their life. Um, that their length of life is greatly decreased. So even when we do get people moved in um, and we, we try and address health needs and those sorts of things, we frequently are seeing um, very shortened lifespans as well.
0: So let's shift a little bit and talk about more specifically to, to mental health and uh, with, um, knowing that mental health resources uh, in the state of Iowa, uh, not to mention here in Poe County, are Limited, uh, both in um, available resources, and, and that includes financial uh, resources. What are we as a community here, specifically to Polk County, doing to to address with what resources we have available, uh, Shelby, uh, to to address some of the needs that we're finding for for this population?
1: So I would say there's a couple of things. One of uh, primary health care's model is that we have integrated behavioral health in all of the medical visits. So we have a behavioral health consultant that is in each clinic. And so uh, the the consultant can come in for each medical visit and kind of check in and see where things are, and they can do some kind of short-term interventions for that person. We also have an outreach therapist who spends half of her day at Central Iowa Shelter and Services and half of it in the clinic, seeing people who are experiencing homelessness for therapy, which I think gives access in a way that they had not previously been given access. Um, primary health care has a nurse practitioner that focuses on mental health and just trying to give access in another way because we realize that some of the larger systems have really long waiting lists for appointments and that if you're missing appointments, that you're likely to not be able to get in for another eight weeks. And we realized that when you're experiencing homelessness and and sometimes even after you're in housing, missing appointments is frequent. And if you don't know where you're sleeping tonight, the appointment isn't the first thing on your mind. Food and shelter is the first thing on your mind. And so we have a little bit of flexibility in being able to serve people. And we think we have a little better understanding of where they're coming from. Uh, you know, our providers, um, they they understand the population that we serve um, a little bit better maybe than just a regular primary care provider. And so we're trying to assist that way. We also have a partnership with um, Broadlands and Ireland Ball for people who have longstanding mental health who may not be referred to, uh, you know, a HUD-funded project to be potentially served in service coordination or care coordination ongoing. Um, with that mental health diagnosis and, and trying to get some supported living services. But what we're seeing is that people who have a lot of mental health symptoms that we're now serving them, where previously they they would have been served in another system. And they might best be served in another system, but that system no longer exists in the way that it used to. And so we're taking care of people with a lot more challenges than we used to. And that's made us as service providers, I think, have to adapt how we serve people and what we understand about mental health, which means we need to have some continued training on, on how do we handle that?
0: Is it, is it that a result of that? Uh, and it sounds like I am hearing it correctly that you've by default been a, the net for many people who have fallen through the cracks of our system or gaps in our system that are landing with you, or no place else to go. Is that overstating, or is that no? About that's.
1: Right? I mean, I think that's true. Um, there's a variety of different systems that have changed over the last five years. That don't. The funding either no longer exists, or this person may have been so challenging that they were not even able to function in that specific system, and so we end up caring for them. But really, we are not the best place to care for them. The shelter is not necessarily the best place to care for them. If they're medically fragile or if they have a brain injury, you know, ideally there, there are systems that, that can do that, but funding is maybe not in the right exact spot or, you know, there's still client choice in that. And so we end up caring for a lot of people that we hadn't previously. Um, and we're still learning from that because I think we have new situations come through the door, and they're, and we're rewriting best practice a lot of the time by trying to figure out how do we best serve the person and navigate those systems. And we're learning about the
2: systems and how they've changed all the time.
0: Cynthia, I think we are too, aren't we?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're constantly doing that with, um, frequently with referrals that we're getting today, um, and it's, you know, are we equipped to deal with, in um, permanent housing uh, that's supposed to be independent living with, um, you know, individuals who are coming in with, you know, um, just severe, severe health problems or severe, severe mental health problems that maybe, again, in the past have been served through some other type of setting. But once again, um, you know, people have the right to choice, um, and they are their, their own decision makers. And so, you know, we become a safety net um de facto as a result and that's not that's not a terrible thing because we do serve very hard people um, but it definitely does strain the system um, definitely
0: so let's talk about a little bit the uh, the idea and we've we've used the word individual and I think that's tended tends to be the population focus of many resources in our community is on a uh, chronically uh, homeless individual, a person with uh, chronic uh, mental health conditions, uh, other physical uh, disabilities, other areas of addiction. But that's not the only population in our community that's suffering in, uh, in a housing crisis or experiencing homelessness. So let's let's move a little bit towards a family uh, homeless uh, discussion. What are we as a community and how are we addressing family homelessness in addition to a parallel or a complementary to the individual?
1: So, um, uh, through centralized intake, we hold the family shelter waiting list and in 2019 we did 599 family intakes. And so not all of those people were experiencing homelessness. And in fact, family homelessness kind of on the surface looks very different because we are seeing a lot of people doubled up. Um, you're more likely to allow a family to stay with you with small children than an individual. And so it, it is a very different way of looking at it. And and even with that shelter referral, we make prioritizations to make sure that we are having the most vulnerable people enter shelter um, or people who don't have another option. So if you're living unsheltered with your child, you are going to go into shelter first before somebody who is living maybe with grandma for and can stay another month. So that's kind of the first way. And then we have 21 family shelter beds at any given point across three shelters. And we have two or three programs that are rapid rehousing programs for families. The number has decreased a little bit um, in terms of the number of families that we can serve. And there are not nearly as many permanent supportive housing options. One, because families rarely meet the chronic guidelines. Um, And two, because that's not really where HUD's focus has been. And so we as a community have used rapid rehousing, which is a shorter term and, and sometimes less um severe intervention as a way of of trying to address those needs and each program looks slightly different um but it's serving folks anywhere from six to 12 months with financial and rental assistance and some case management and for some families that works really well they just kind of need that hand up the short-term assistance for other families what we see is that there isn't an increase in income potentially or that there are longer standing options or or issues and so we we need a longer term intervention um and we've we've been really lucky and the ANOM has had some continued family permanent supportive housing so that you know once in a while when we have that need there there's been an opening which is really amazing and necessary but it is such a different population, and and we have a ton of little munchkins that come with them. So, you know, those 599 families, there's really probably another thousand kids that come come with them. And so there's a lot of doubled up homelessness. We work closely with Des Moines Public Schools to make sure that kiddos are still in school. um, And we're also looking at how do we use rapid resolution to divert people from ever entering the system, because we would rather keep them in a safe place than have them come into the homeless system and not be able to exit again. Um, You know, one of the predictors of future homelessness is past homelessness, and and we don't want that to happen because they're homeless as children.
0: Cynthia, how about uh, from our perspective? I mean, our available units of permanent supportive housing for families has decreased over the years. As Shelby mentioned, it's been a, a movement not necessarily we pushed for it was a hud uh, requirement that's pushed us towards a chronic homeless uh, but we're still able to serve some families what's that looking Mm -hmm. like for us
2: Mm -hmm. so we we actually still do serve a lot of families um, but because it's permanent housing there's no end date to that housing which That's part of the beauty of it, um, that we can, you know, work with people as long as they need that support. Um, But the problem is, is that then there are no new openings that are are coming up, or very, very rarely are they coming up. Um, And so, you know, it's a matter of, you know, trying to maintain um, a certain amount of units that um, are designated for families, and then working really diligently um, with the families that are currently in our housing to make sure that, Um, If we are seeing somebody that is ready to move on to another housing um, type, it might be a supportive, it might be a Section 8, um, it might be, you know, paying full rent on their own, that we then are assisting them into moving into that type of housing so that we can have another opening for another family to come in who needs it. Um, so that's one of the things really system wide that we've been working very closely with um, centralized intake really for several years is to make sure that we are, you know, prioritizing and we are right sizing people into the right units that are um, the right size size units and the right level of support that they actually do need.
1: I think we're going to have a, a unique opportunity moving forward. Um, the City of Des Moines was awarded 60 mainstream vouchers, which is does allow for permanent supportive housing or rapid rehousing for people to right size onto a Section 8 voucher um, in a way that we've... I know that the ANWM has... A, kind of a preference for that in the past but it allows it to kind of it really expand and the hope being that we're going to be able to serve more people in those programs as we're right-sizing people to a Section 8 voucher. Um, you know that's kind of in the beginning stages of what that really looks like for implementation but I, I do think that that's going to be a win for our community.
0: Yeah I think we would definitely want to see that uh, and see that relationship uh, better evolve with uh, utilizing a, a broader set of resources in our mm-hmm. community whether it's um, you know the this full spectrum of, of housing and dressing homeless housing uh, or moving homeless individuals and families through that continuum and starting whether it starts at shelter uh, all the way to um, you know self-sufficiency and the scale in between there so so a little bit about um, how information that we're gathering from from in, from folks that are walking through the door of centralized intake at primary health care and and as we look at some of the data trends and what we're finding now in the community that there are uh, some amount of demographic, a little bit of demographic disparity that may be happening that was unknown to us until I think we really started digging in and say, are, is, is the data sort of becoming available? What do what we learn from that and maybe some directions that we can start going from there? And either of you can start with that.
2: Well, I think p- part of it is that we were looking at, um, if we look at the population of who is homeless and then we look at who is being served in homelessness program or assistance program, so permanent supportive housing. So there's the percentage of people who are um, people of color being served in uh, or who are actually experiencing homelessness is not the same as the number of people who are being served in permanent supportive housing. So there's, we should see a, a, a closer correlation between who is homeless and who is being served in permanent supportive housing. And I think that is where we found that there is that disparity. So if the general population is, you know, X of, of um, you know, people of color and then our portion of people that we're being serving, that we are serving in permanent supportive housing is much less than that, then we then are not serving the correct population.
1: You know, from a centralized intake perspective, we want to build rapport with people as quickly as possible and make them feel comfortable in sharing um, kind of what's really happening, and that's important because we want people to feel like they can can really tell us what's happening. With that being said, we realize that a lot of people don't have a lot of trust in systems, and that sometimes that is, decreases what they're willing to share with us. Um, and we have to understand that as as a whole, um, and then how you know how do we address that, and how do we make people feel comfortable. Um, in sharing that you know there may be less sharing of a disability that they have um, and or maybe you know physicians are not diagnosing that um, at the same rate Um, but we want to make we want to make sure we get all of the information and sometimes that means that we don't do the intake at the very first meeting and that it it takes that progressive engagement um, of meeting with the person over a period of time to build that relationship so that when we do the intake or when they're ready for that they're, they've shared that through conversation um, so that we can make the right referral at the right time. And then we're also looking at, um, in terms of the vi SPDAT, and are there additional questions that as a, a continuum we can implement through centralized intake to make sure that if there are, are gaps in where we're assessing people, that we can better address those. Um, and so we're looking at a variety of different questions through the racial equity Um, committee Um, and hopefully that will make sure that a a different there's a wide variety of things I think that that they're looking to address um, with those questions to hopefully make sure that that we're serving the people that we know need to be served but maybe hadn't been prioritized um, before based on information that we didn't have.
0: So. Shifting a little bit to the uh, the idea of Housing First, and I think we've just touched around the edges of it just a little bit here uh, in conversation so far. Housing First as a community, uh, we are using the uh, the VI-SVIDAD, the, the Vulnerability Index, to assess uh, the individuals of, of greatest need and moving them into housing and then supporting them through uh, the rest of their needs that we've identified, uh, mental health, substance abuse, and everything like that. So I'm gonna ask you a question in a, in, a, in a little different way. What does a community look like that doesn't do housing first? What ends up happening? And so what, I mean, I, so it's kind of a roundabout way of saying why are we doing it the right way? But what's some of the impacts of, of forcing other things onto an individual before housing? How can they, How, can we, how why are we making them more successful today?
1: i think there's less engagement when people when you're not in a housing first community um, because you know that there are hoops to jump through and so they may try and fail at that and then there's discouragement so there's just a kind of disengagement with the system Um, and and that's obviously not good because then you have more people experiencing homelessness for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. um, almost aging into chronicity by virtue of not wanting that. You're also not honoring a client's choice and and saying you know what's best for them. And really, I've not had their experiences, and and I can give them a lot of options that I think are great, and they will make the choice that that works for them best. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I think you end up serving people sometimes that you think you like. Um, if there's not a prioritization, if we're not operating under housing first. So, um, you know, it's almost like choosing to serve the folks who, um, who are the most engaging or, or who you most can empathize with. And, um, and when that happens, then we're not, we're not serving the people who most need the housing um, and we're not offering it to them. Um, Those are the folks that are, you know, deep in the woods kind of just doing their own thing. Um, And in order to get them to be interested in housing, it's going to take um, sometimes years of progressive engagement to develop those trusting relationships. Um, And then, you know, kind of the overarching thing is the, the idea of that we know what's best for you. Um, And, you know, in order for us to be successful in housing people, we need to be partnering with people and making sure that they are a whole part of the process. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you you know, you also then are are believing that those people have, you know, dignity and they also have, um, that they're experts of their own experiences and they're experts in knowing what they need in order to, you know, to solve their problems. so the housing is, is a tool to do that, but it's, it can be really tough.
0: I'll take it one step further on, uh, hopefully you'll both agree, but I think Housing First is saving lives. So.
2: Okay. Agreed.
0: You've been listening to the Anim Housing, Homeless Everything podcast. Today we've been talking about housing and health care with uh, Shelby Ridley, Director of Homeless Support Services at Primary Healthcare, and Cynthia Latcham, Director of Programs and Services at Aniom Housing. Thank you again both for joining us. And thank you all for listening again to the Home is Everything podcast, uh, our continuing series on housing stability and homelessness and how they intersect with other community sectors and community issues. And we hope you enjoyed it and look forward to our next broadcast. Thank you again.